everybody. Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business produced by Enterprise. Your 6am briefing on finance, business and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. By the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. And by EFG Hermes, the leading financial services corporation in frontier emerging markets, helping businesses realize their full growth potential. Your host today is Patrick, Enterprise's Editor-in-Chief. Before we introduce today's guest, we want to thank the thousands of you who are listening to Making It Every Week. And we also want to ask you a couple favors. First, we want you to help us spread the word. Egypt is really new to podcasts, and there are lots of people out there who don't have a clue that listening to your favorite show is a great way to kill your commute or to pass time when you're out for a run. If you have a friend that you think might like the show, forward them the email that you use to find it, or share them a link from our website or from your podcatcher of choice. And be prepared, you may have to take their phone out of their hands and open it up and show them where the podcast app is, and explain to them that you just have to press the play button, and magically it streams through the air. The second favor is a bigger ask. We want you guys to help us plan out the next seasons of the show. We want each season to have a mix of guests. CEOs you know who are running businesses that are household names? Yeah, sure. But we're also looking for the folks who are next. The CEOs and founders that are building businesses today that will become tomorrow's CIBs and Arascoms and EFGs. If you have someone in mind, drop us an email at makingit at enterprise.press. That's makingit at enterprise.press. And tell us a little bit about them and why you think they'd be a good addition to the show. One last note before we get underway, we're going to be taking a little break over the next few weeks to spend time with family and friends over New Year, so we'll have no new episodes until the 9th of January. But hey, we have five episodes out there now as of today, so if you've missed one, it's a great time to get caught up. You can find them all at enterprise.press slash podcast or in your podcast feed. Catch you all in 2020, folks. Our guest today is Hezem Musa. He's the co-founder and CEO of Sarwa Capital, but he'll forgive you if you've never heard of his company, because unless you're a finance nerd like us, it's pretty unlikely that you've heard of Sarwa. I mean, what's a leader in structured and consumer finance anyway? But dig a little bit deeper, and there's a really good chance that Sarwa has played a role in your financial life one way or another. If you've looked on contact cars for a new or used vehicle, that's owned by Sarwa Capital. Have you bought a car through Contact or insured it through them? That's Sarwa. And if you've bought a car on installments through your car dealer, there's a pretty good chance that Sarwa Capital financed the transaction on a white-label basis. Then there's this thing called securitization. It's when, for example, a car company pools together contracts for like a thousand cars that it's sold on installments. They throw in a dash of legal and financial magic and then transform it into this new security called a securitized bond. Now, the car company gets the value of the cars right now rather than waiting for the installments. And the bondholders, well, they get a steady income stream. Real estate players are the latest to get in on this trend. But it's a market that Sarwa invented here in Egypt, and one that it dominates today as the lead arranger in the field. Sarwa recently got into the insurance game. It's done a joint venture with the people who own Premium Card to do a new consumer finance product. And it offers mortgages to home buyers and corporate leasing solutions to companies as well. 
Hezem talked with us about raising money for the business before venture capital was ever a thing in Egypt, about life after going public on the EGX in a controversial IPO back in 2018, and about how he resists micromanaging while still keeping his finger on the pulse of the business. Thank you for being here today. Pleasure. Thank you. This is a show about people like you who are building great businesses. It's not therapy or psychotherapy for CEOs. But still, we're going to make you go back and talk about your childhood. All right. Every guest has to answer the question, what is the one toy or game from childhood that you enjoyed most and that had an impact on you and how you do business? I grew up moving around a lot. I lived in multiple countries because I was moving around with my parents and uh, different schools every, say, two, three years. So for me, it was always the biggest activity or preoccupation was always getting to know new places and new people, which in itself... I consider quite an activity, quite an interesting activity. And only later did I find out that, you know, it was a way of life rather than the circumstance of the moment. How has that experience translated into business? Well, I believe it contributed a lot to me as a person and to, and to who I am. I think it actually defines who I am, uh, being able to adapt to different people, different communities, different environments, whether it's you know, not just about people, it's also about different times and different uh, modes and constantly being, uh, you know, looking for new things, how to make things different, how to operate in a different environment, how to adapt to a different market. So it's always very interesting. I think it's an important lesson in business, but also times change and times can change pretty quickly from one, you know, you're coasting through one period and then things can change, whether it's a landscape, uh, regulations, the economy, competition, people within your business, people investing in your business. It's all about that and managing that change constantly is a very important part of running a business or building a business. So you've been at this for 20 years now. And earlier when we were chatting before the show, you described yourself still as thinking as if you're in startup mode. Once upon a time, though, you were a startup. It was early days. I'm not even sure if you guys were known as Sarwa then or if no. you were known as Contact then. Contact, um, yes. you know, Which is the more publicly known face uh, of what you guys do. So walk us through the origin story before we talk about who you are and what you do today. So three years before we actually set up the company, and that's the time it took us to raise capital. Myself, along with two partners, the two co-founding partners, we worked together at HSBC at the time, Tara Bugendeya and Amr Dame, my two co-founders. Back then, you can imagine, things were very different. Uh, we live now you know, in a time of VCs and private equity funds and angel investors and a lot of capital out there looking for investments and looking for the right business and looking for growth. Back in 98, that was just... There was nothing, man. It was, uh, was wasteland. It just didn't, the concept didn't exist. So you had three guys going around, meeting people, you know, three guys with no capital going around with a business plan, trying to raise money. The concept was just strange. Getting meetings was difficult because, you know, maybe you had a link to them, maybe you knew them or something. But the idea was difficult for people to digest. And it was a lot easier back then. I remember telling people it'd be a lot easier if we wanted to set up yet another cement plant for, you know, trying to raise 500 million might have been easier. How Uh, much were you trying to raise? We were trying to raise 50 million pounds, which... That was, was money not, back then. It was, it was, yeah, a substantial amount of money. And it took us three years to do it. We went through very many iterations. We tried private investors. We tried institutions. We tried the few funds that were around back then. We tried to go to people in the market itself. The first product we were launched was a car financing. And so we talked to people in the car market. In the end, we ended up with a great combination, but it, it really took, uh, it was a very painful process with CIB. Bank of Mesro are two initial shareholders, the largest shareholders in the company. Then we introduced the rest of the, the rest of the parties and got going. So we just started, I think it was in the summer of 98. 
And we ended up setting up the company in August, September 2001. And that was straight up car finance. That was called, we started our first products were car financing and car insurance. We were thinking of the consumer market and consumer finance in general. From a background of investment banking, we worked in debt markets. We were trying to develop debt markets and how to raise money. So we knew how to raise money for this type of business. So what is your business today? And what does the business look like five years from now? Well, our business today is two main parts. So there's the financing side and there's the insurance side. Insurance side, we kicked off the process and then we got two fully licensed subsidiaries now, one in life insurance and one in general insurance that we set up. They launched earlier this year and is a very important part of where we're headed and it completes sort of the two sides. I mean, they're not two distinct and separate sides. They complement each other greatly because there's a big role for insurance in the finance market and vice versa. They work together, even though there are a lot of products that will grow separately, but at the same time, it's part of an offering range and working on developing different parts of the market in a way that will end up helping our business cycle. We work across the board and commercial as well, but we're focused on consumer, just like we're focused on consumer finance, even though we also do commercial finance. But we believe that's the driver. That's the big uh, what do you mean opportunity when you say com- in the market. When you say commercial finance? We work you know, through leasing and factoring and providing financing for commercial operations. We're focused in, in a couple of sectors, medical and in transportation. So that's for businesses, the smaller end of the market. And insurance, we work on commercial insurance so across the board for companies, whether it's on the general side through, you know, just uh, commercial insurance of all types and on the life and health through corporate working with companies or selling to companies. But what we're developing and what we're focused on developing a lot more is the consumer offering. And just like when we started back in 2001, when access, retail access to financial products was very limited, insurance is the same today, arguably even less. Yeah. Nobody wants insurance. I mean, yeah. who, who wants who wants insurance? Sitting there, you know, passively saying, yeah. "Oh, I want to." I wish pay I had someone. life insurance. I, I want to give money to somebody. Well, life insurance has its particulars, but also general types, other types of insurance. Sure, I mean, sure. You'd like your house to be protected. You'd like your car to be protected. But you know, there's always tomorrow to do so. It's not a need. It's more of a good to have kind of thing in in most people's minds at best. And I think that might explain where the market is today. And, and for me, the, the strangest part of it all is to hear that from insurance companies. I can finally hear that from the market, people, public, potential. But hearing it from insurance companies is like saying, you know, our product won't sell. And I find that very, very uh, how do, strange. But how, how do you so, make people want it? I mean, we, we were talking, not for the podcast, but in an interview with Bessie Lahini from the uh, insurance holding yes. company. And he said, you know, if I could do one thing as a large actor in the sector, it would be to find a way to grow the industry, not to fight over how we carve out the pie, but to physically make the pie larger. Exactly. How do you make people want the product? That's a big challenge. And I think the important aspect here is to first develop products that cater to this market rather than just do standard products that, you know, cut and paste approach from other it works in the operators States, so it's around the world or in Europe or in Asia or wherever. I mean, there's lessons to be learned 100% from all these markets, but sure. you have to adapt it to your market, your audience, the segments that you're targeting. We're obviously still extremely uh, low penetration in the market. So we're not talking about how to go from under 1% to say 70%. You know, we're just talking about how to grow step by step from 1% to how 5%. Many, how many that Egyptians like have insurance right now? Is it single digit or double digit? Medium the insurance digit, I mean, industry as a percent yeah. of GDP is yeah. under 1%. Under 1%. The whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. That includes the bulk of it is commercial. Commercial. So the numbers are very, very low. Just ask yourself the question or ask anybody around you the question. If you wanted to get insurance, what do you do? 
if you want to get health insurance today, mm-hmm. if you want to insure your home, if you want to insure your, you know, your car might be more straightforward because you just ask a car dealer because that, that kind of developed over the last 20 years. But if you want to insure your home, do you know what to do? Home insurance? I know who I'd call. So, because you know uh, someone. Yeah, exactly. In the industry. In the industry. Right. Yeah. But if you didn't know someone in the industry. No, no, no. It's, uh, look, I mean, I think in that respect, it's simple. If you want health insurance, you're nagging your employer. If you want car insurance, you're trying to get it at the best price when you're buying the vehicle. And otherwise, you're at your own mercy. Did you see somebody inside a bank trying to sell you an insurance product? Did you stumble Again, across it online? Inside a you bank, have to which, go is, out and find it. which is the exact, I'm saying, nobody wants insurance. So you're asking people to go out and find it is, I mean, nobody wants insurance. I mean, instinctively, people yeah. want insurance when they understand it or when there's more, when the process becomes easier. People will be more happy to subscribe, but if you're asking them to make an effort and think about it and then get out of their seats and go do it, but even when they want to, even when you already have that, that interest. So you want to insure your home. Most people don't know how to answer this question. Yeah. Yeah. I would be much more aware that there's such a thing as insurance and I would get over and over messages that insurance is important and it sort of seeps into me and industry helps positively create the demand. I think it's a combination of things. So of both sides. And mm-hmm. an important part of insurance, for example, being mandatory in many countries and some products is because the insurance can play a very important role in removing volatility from markets and from economies in different segments. And so for policymakers and governments around the world, it's an important part of supporting the market. But also, on the other hand, from the operations themselves and you know for businesses and we talk to businesses about using insurance to help them plan better so it's not only on the macro level but also on sort of the business level what's your fastest growing product line right now okay, there's cars consumer goods consumer durables and there's uh, real estate and mortgage and uh, home finishing that's everything mortgage related so mortgage also has huge potential but also the biggest challenges in just in the, in the market structure Consumer durable is something that is growing very fast, but it's part of our overall ecosystem. What needs to happen in the market for mortgage finance to really become a thing? When a couple can get married, go out to the market, find a home they like, seek a competitive mortgage, choose one provider, and sign on for a 20-year mortgage. Well, I think that's a topic that requires its own podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even a series because it, there's, a, there's a lot to there's talk lot about in there, there huh? but try to cover it very briefly. I think the structure of the market, it's been preventing that from happening. The real estate market has always been predominantly, if not all of it, based on off-plan sales. That's the new construction, which is a very important part of any mortgage market, especially in a market where there's undersupply historically in demand for housing. There's oversupply potentially in, in now, Certain maybe in some maybe. segments, but overall. So it's very important to look at that. And that equation, I think, is what has been preventing that. So you need to be able to separate the construction phase, the construction risk, the construction funding from the asset funding. That's always been mixed into one. Yes, there are other problems like registrations and like availability of long-term funds. But I think these are things that can be solved. But the fundamental part is the structure of how houses are built and sold. So the client invariably is the one funding the construction of the unit. And so you're asking about a young married couple going out and borrowing money to live in a house. In reality, they're being asked now to pay for the construction of the house, not just pay for the house. Yeah. Pay for its construction before it exists. It means taking the risk of that process as well. 100%. So that, that I think is the, core, is the core structural problem. But the incentives have to change for that to happen for developers. Absolutely. I want to ask then, if we go back a moment in time, what are you building? What's your elevator pitch for what you look like five, five years from now? 
well, elevator pitch is you know something that we've been pitching for a long time now. Been saying, so give it to me. <laughs> been saying similar things from the very beginning. It has evolved somewhat and adapted to different phases we're in. But the pitch in general is that we're building a sort of broad-based consumer financial services operation. And that has two implementations. One is direct to consumer and one is through helping businesses offer services to their consumers. And that's the two approaches we use. And that's what we continue to do as we add more and more products. I think now our general category, I mean, the pitch is done, right? Because we have we got to the 10th floor. <laughs> Just to elaborate one part, um, we're between financing and insurance. And these are sort of the two I mean, primary categories. Mm-hmm. And now it's developing more products and better products across the board on both sides to cater to growing and wider audience. An interesting part of more as a result of what we've done since from the beginning, that model of looking at customer and the product and the quality of the product first and foremost versus growth and versus the speed of growth. What transpired out of it, as I was saying, if you build the right product, people do appreciate that, as I was saying earlier. The other aspect of it is that you end up reaching client bases that are different from other Where players other out. players are reaching. Uh, we've noticed that after a few years, and that trend continued for a long time, over at the beginning, it was even higher, but one in two customers that come to us have never dealt with a bank before. One in two. One in two, it's 50%. Um, and that trend held for a very long time. It tells you something, right? It tells you something about strategies going on in the market and the approach. There is purchasing power that is not being addressed, and that's not our objective to target the unbanked, our primary strategy. So we don't build it for that, but we build it for everyone. So across the board, we have banked and unbanked clients that, that come in. We bring them into the system. Of course, they all become banked because through our process, they, they open have bank accounts and they use yeah. bank accounts. But that, that's very interesting and very, I think, an interesting result of the strategy is that you're able to reach a wider audience. MediaNet is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. Let's go back to capital then and talk about the mix of capital that you've had to use over time to grow the business. Mm -hmm. As we were saying earlier, the origins of the company, we started up with big investors from the outset because we, you know, we needed to raise capital to build, a, build our own balance sheet. So having two banks on board from the very beginning, from the start, we're trying to set up the kind of business that can become an institution of sorts, can become an operation that stands on its feet rather than sort of a private business that belongs to so one person or another, or even a group of people. Having institutional shareholders from the beginning was part of that. We were happy with that. I mean, that's what we wanted. We wanted institutional shareholders from the beginning to help that happen. And over time, we raised money from a number of different sources. I mean, we had some private investors at the very beginning, but that, that was it for private investors. Afterwards, we had Societe and Bank A couple of years later, when our first private equity fund invested, Egyptian Direct Investment Fund, was fund managed by Concord. They came in, I think it was in 2003. So CIB and Concord both exited a few years later. And we brought in Amwala Khalig, which is a, another private equity fund. They came in to acquire those stakes. And then... And later, they sold their stake along with another transaction with increasing capital to Egyptian American Enterprise Fund. So we had a number of investors of different types, a lot of funds, a lot of private equity in the mix. How much say did you guys have in choosing who those people were? Oh, it was our choice. In this type of business, it's a people's business, right? We're a service, financial services. There has to be a very good connection and alignment and strategy and goals between the shareholders and people running the company. 
in our case, we're founders, we're shareholders, and management. We make mixture of everything. But it's very important to have shareholders with you that back that. At the same time, when goals don't necessarily always align forever, mm-hmm. so it's normal that you know with time you adapt that and change that so that you maintain that kind of alignment, forward alignment, going forward. The banks we had at the beginning uh, came a phase. That was a phase when at one point it was either we would be a captive business or we'd be an independent business. So it's a choice that had to be made. I think we went this direction because it worked out best for everyone as an independent company. That's where private equity came in. And then one, you know, funds have a certain lifespan. So that went from one to another. We last year we went public, which was another important step for us there's another fundraising round so we raised money overall in the life of the company maybe four times fresh capital some of it was secondary previous rounds were secondary as well but there was also injection of capital that was i think the fourth time we raised funds so that was one of the reasons but another one of the reasons also the evolution of the shareholder base you need to at some point have more stability in the long term being public helps you get there instead of relying you know on, on one cycle of private equity after another and broaden the base so to be able to build more of a Again, that company that will stand on its feet and have an ability to, on the one hand, generate uh, the investor base evolving, and on the other hand, having an internal structure that can cater for the growth, can adapt to the growth, can have the longevity that you're, that you're looking for. And for me, how do I define success for a company like ours that we started from scratch all those years ago? And for me, it's always been the same thing. Of course, numbers are one thing. But more important numbers for me is always sustainability and longevity and building something that will last is for me the, the primary measure of success. So I feel that we're on that path and we're getting closer to that being the reality. I'm talking in the past now, I mean, I think we're l- are largely covered a big part of that road. You guys went through an IPO process that was controversial. I think what anyone listening to the podcast today can probably understand if they knew you and you guys as a firm is that you guys were not at the center of the controversy. It wasn't a controversy about your business. It wasn't a controversy about the quality of your management, your board, or your governance. And yet, in the time since IPO, your share price has lagged. You're down 28% from your high in December. And um, we're talking here in late October 2019. A year later. A year later. How do you move past that? How do you reshape the narrative to focus on the health and sustainability of the business and not, you know, this is a share we like, this is a share we don't like? I think we've moved well past it. And over time, that's, I'm fine with that. I mean, in terms of obviously not fine with how it went about last year, but that's now in the past. Now things are going to develop on a different track and we're going to get there. The business itself, going to market in an IPO was important for our development overall, as I was touching on in terms of capital structure, in terms of having the right balance sheet, in terms of being, setting the stage for future growth, for future investment, investors coming in, investors going out, all that is very important. So markets, you know, they were obviously quite turbulent, middle to the end of last year. So, you know, things happened the way they happened. It was unfortunate that it went that way. And I think as a result of that, combined with technical reasons like the the size of the liquidity in our stock is what's contributing to where we are now, things, you know, will will change over time. It's not something you can control. It's more that you can contribute to what happens next. And um, we believe is a very solid path. Uh, We're expanding. We're uh, investing a lot in our business and our resources and our capabilities. Things that will still happen in the coming uh, months and uh, years that will take the business to new levels combined with, you know, potentially more liquidity coming 
coming in the market and it's going to happen. Is it harder to do it all in public? You guys have always had a board, so you've always been held accountable for you said you were going to do X, you fell short, you exceeded, let's talk about why. But you do it in public now. Is it easier? Is it harder? Is it just different? Well, it's harder and it's different. <laughs> both. The challenge for me, I find, is how to be able to satisfy both ways of thinking. Okay. You build the business through planning and through the longer term and not everyone has that. It's interested to hear everything about that or focused on that. And so to be able to communicate more short term, but at the same time, maintain your medium term, because that's what brings the results in the end. I mean, you're not talking to day traders, right? You're talking to short term investors, medium term investors. So medium term can mean a few months, can mean a year. But what will deliver value to everyone is the long term prospects. It's the long term prospects that will always find its way back to today's value, today's value proposition and valuation as a result. So you need to continue to be focused on that while being able to talk to a public market. Um, this quarter's results. But I think, you know, what you have to really try hard to, to not let that, not mix the two into one and be able to do both. I'm not discounting at all the private, the public markets. Of course, you have to cater to that and think about it on regular, if not daily basis. But at the same time, the medium term and long term direction of where you're going is at the end of the day, what's going to feed into everything else. Are you asked different questions now by board that you're a publicly traded company than you were when you had private equity or strategics on board? Not really. Maybe you're asked no new questions by outside investors or people that come in and out of the stock or that were invested or that thinking of investing. So the, the range of questions have grown. People and investors obviously a very, very wide range of people who know very well what they're, the technicalities of what we do and our business and uh, the details of people who are looking more at a, at a bigger picture. So yeah, the range of questions has grown, but it's useful and it helps. The flip side of all of that, harder or, and so on, is that you get a lot of insight and a lot of different takes on managing your business or on, on how people are looking at the markets, the business. Um, by markets, I mean the market segments we operate in and the different dynamics there. So it's all helps contribute to that. And the important things for me is to take all of that and try to put it into the approach and way of thinking about how to grow the business or about what to look for looking ahead. What are the five things that are on your dashboard? What five numbers tell you about the health of your business? And do you look at those daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly? I mean, I look at uh, beyond numbers, I mean, just simple business numbers. I look at organizational feedback. It sounds like, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it's a long thing, but organizational feedback means where people stand, happy people are or satisfied people are in various levels. So whether they're the top managers or, or those below, that's one aspect because that tells you a lot. It tells you a lot about everything else, how the business is going. People on, you know, that deal with customers are never in a good mood when customers are not happy. And people who deal with internally only are not in a good mood if the machine is not properly oiled and, and people are not happy working together. At the same time, we keep adding a lot of people. So there's, there's that challenge. So, I mean, I'm just, I might be talking a bit too general, but it's, it really is, you look for these signs on a regular, on continual basis. Uh, How many people metrics. are you guys today? We're just under a thousand. Under a thousand. Yeah. So how does the CEO figure out what's happening at each level of the company when you're a thousand people strong? Yes. How do you know that your finance guys are grumpy or that the customer service people have had, you know, three really bad weeks? Well, through a combination of their managers and digging into different areas from time to time, you know, constantly talking to everyone, but, you know, make sure that you do talk to 
different people in different parts of the organization as uh, junior people as often as you can to get a little bit of inside pulse of what's going on. But yeah, so it's, it's through internal communication and it's very, very important. And, you know, there's lots and lots to talk about there. And, you know, it's a whole science on its own and cannot put enough emphasis on how important that is. It's a never ending thing. You have to keep working on it and keep trying to get better every day, every week. I mean, that's, it's vital. What's the biggest thing that made a difference for you guys on that front? The biggest thing? That made a difference for you in terms of being able to address happiness internally. You know, trying to get people to feel a sense of ownership, trying in the way you talk to people and, and trying to get through the message that, you know, you are the one building it. It's not like, here you go, here's your job description, do one to 10. Thank you. It's you're the one building this product or this detail even and sticking with that. And just saying the language of I'm building it with you or through you and with you rather than we're building it and you're just here doing it. It's a small, it looks like a small difference, but it's a very big difference in the way yeah, there's a big uh, distinction would, would there. And, yeah, yeah, there's a, a big distinction, distinction and I can imagine there, you know, there, it's a challenge in your own mind how you empower them that way and then resist the urge to micromanage on the other. That's yeah. a challenge. Yeah. That's but, a fun That's why I call it engagement. On a scale of zero to 10, how hard is it not to micromanage? It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Are you a micromanager by nature? I guess, yes, but I, I don't want to be one. How is that working out? I micromanage, it, it might sound like an oxymoron, I micromanage so that I don't, so that okay. I kind of set examples or help people think things through or guide them so that they can take that and move from there. Of course, it sounds conflicting because once you do that, of course, it can be seen as constantly micromanaging everything. But I think it's important to be engaged. And I think it's important for people to see that there's a link between strategy and overall management and the little details. It should be a two-way process. Last question, and it's a question we're asking everybody who appears on the show, publicly traded or not publicly traded. Why would I buy a share of Sarawak Capital today? We're building and we're continuing to build. And what we're trying to build is unique, in my view, at least. It's uh, really trying to build something worthwhile. And the good thing for us is that we know we have a, a good track record of that having delivered, this strategy having delivered, this approach, this focus on building something it's quality that is sustainable that will continue is something that i firmly believe will continue to deliver and we're really building very important parts of the business still we're not anywhere near done with you know getting to where we want to be insurance is the biggest the most obvious part of that but there's other things as well and other parts so a long road to go that important part of going forward the increasing use of technology in different parts of the business when it comes from credit scoring to product delivery to interacting with clients to the whole process and you know we're doing a lot of that right now we have been for for a long time but it's always been more on the back end um we're doing a number of things on the front end on delivery on the interface linking products together and that's a big part of the current phase and in the coming period um so linking to how we can build continue to grow in the coming few years and beyond that we hope you enjoyed this week's episode if you want to comment or maybe suggest a guest send us an email at making it at enterprise.press that's making it at enterprise.press making it is produced by enterprise your morning briefing on business finance and economics in egypt Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press.
Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. Next week's episode will be out on Friday at 8 a.m. This season is brought to you by CIB, USAID, and EFG Hermes. And that's how we're making it.